maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com. The West has failed Syria. This debate took place on the 21st of October 2013 at London's Royal Institution. It's a good topic that we've uh, come to debate, a you know, hugely serious and important one. Indeed, one that did for a few weeks, uh, appeared to dominate politics, not only here in Britain, but across the Atlantic and around the world at the very start of uh, the autumn, uh, in fact, before people had even fully come back from the summer with that that vote in the House of Commons on that Thursday night uh, in late uh, August. Um, And and it threatened then, I think, people thought this was going to cast a very long shadow over uh, the autumn, that this issue would dominate. And yet, for some uh, reason which perhaps we might explore, uh, the issue in some ways could be said to have faded as if it lasted just a few weeks. And indeed, that kind of inattention uh, to the issue may be part of our uh, discussion uh, tonight. Um, 
Nevertheless, for all that, this is an issue that has not gone away. It was not some fleeting uh, summer fancy. On the contrary, this is a war in Syria that has gone on for uh, closing in on three years. Uh, and uh, it's still very much with us, even here in this city, tomorrow in London, uh, 11 foreign ministers from around the world, along with the Syrian National uh, Coalition, the SNC, will be, uh, Syrian National Council rather, will be here in London to debate ways forward with a view to uh, peace talks that are slated to begin in uh, November in Geneva. So the issue uh, is at the forefront of foreign policymakers, especially here in London and especially right now. So we're going to, uh, so that's the subject before us. Uh, the West has failed Syria, uh, and we're going to introduce these speakers as they uh, come before us. Uh, I'll just tell you a few words of sort of housekeeping. Uh, we're going to hear two people for the motion, two against. I'll introduce each one as they uh, appear. Um, each speaker is going to have uh, eight to nine minutes uh, to speak. I will ping the glass politely at first to warn them they have two minutes. Then I will ping the glass with an audible note of insistence uh, when they only have a minute left. Uh, and, uh, and I'll make sure that all our speakers have absolutely the same amount of time. Once you've heard from all four of them, there will be then a chance to open it up for wider debate involving as many of you as I can uh, cram in. Uh, the way I hope to do, the way I'll be helped in doing that is if you can speak as briefly as you can manage. And uh, I encourage you to ask questions, pointed questions of the panel rather than launching into long speeches of your own, strong though that urge will be. Um, I'll then bring it back to the panel. There'll be a round of questions. That will go on for as, uh, for as, uh, for as, much of, uh, as many questions as I can uh, make time for, and then we'll hear something on speeches, etc. So without further ado, I think we should uh, move on to the uh, debate itself. The West has failed Syria, and here... To begin is a columnist, the uh, author and columnist for the New York Times, who has written extensively on this subject and perhaps give you a flavour of where he's coming from if I tell you the headlines for columns he's written on the subject. One from February of 2013, Intervene in Syria, followed up, uh, or rather that was a follow-up to a column that had appeared a year earlier, Arm Syria's Rebels, in August, Make Assad Pay, and then in September of this year after that Commons vote and after uh, those manoeuvres in Congress on Capitol Hill, an anchorless world. So I think that doesn't hide very much where our first speaker for the motion that the West has failed Syria is coming from. Please welcome Roger Cohen. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Uh, thank you, Hannah. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming here on this lovely evening. Um, well, somebody has failed Syria. More than two and a half years into the war, over 100,000 people are dead. Almost a third of the country's population has been forced to abandon their homes. Two million refugees have flooded into Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, and Iraqi Kurdistan, and many more Syrians are internally displaced. President Bashar al-Assad has shot, shelled, bombed, and finally gassed his people en masse in the 42-year tradition of his family. A conflict that began as a popular uprising against the Assad dictatorship, one met at once with bullets, has morphed into a civil war that has... Um, 
brought in Sunni jihadis from across the Arab world, Qatari and Saudi billions, and on the regime's side, the Shia forces of Hezbollah and Iran's Quds force. This, ladies and gentlemen, was not inevitable. Yet it has happened. A border-crossing Sunni-Shia confrontation now spreads. Epitaphs for Sykes-Picot multiply. Lawless zones, those great breeders of terror, grow. Nobody has any idea how to put Syria together again. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, somebody, somebody has failed Syria, a shattered and desperate place today. Perhaps, as our opponents tonight will argue, it was not the West. It was Assad, a bad guy, but no worse than a bad region demands. It was Putin, damned after Libya, if he was going to give the United States and its allies UN Security Council backing for an intervention. It was the Syrian opposition, too fractured and divided to be effective. Or maybe it was the dyspeptic British and French diplomats who almost a century ago drew impossible lines on maps that packed Sunnis, Alawites, Christians, Shia, Druze, Kurds, Ismailis, Sufis, Yazidis, and others into a country called Syria and imagined for a moment that such a country could hold together without brutal dictatorship, Assad style. But no, it was not the United States, Britain, and their allies. It was not the West that failed. Oh, no, it was not the West that came out in support of the Free Syrian Army, promised military support, and failed to deliver. It was not the West that recognized the opposition coalition as a legitimate representative of the Syrian people, but now deals with Assad and gives him plaudits for coming clean on his chemical weapons. It was not the West that set a red line against the use of chemical weapons and then blinked. It was not the West that has debated, dithered, and dawdled as Syria disintegrated. Well, yes, ladies and gentlemen, it was the West that has failed Syria. It is not alone in this, not alone by any means, but it has. Democratic states have failed in their responsibility to protect the Syrian people. Paddy Ashdown said after the recent British parliamentary vote against military intervention that he had, quote, never felt more depressed or ashamed. He suggested Putin and Assad would be cheering and that in effect Britain had declared the sufferings of Syrians to be nothing to do with me. He was right then. Now I say all this in the knowledge of the immense difficulty of determining an effective course of action in Syria. Iraq and Afghanistan hang over us all. They are Western failures. Our societies are war weary. Our treasuries are bare. Nobody hungers for a fourth Western entanglement in a Muslim state. Russia and China have blocked authorization for Syrian intervention in the Security Council. And so any intervention would lack legal authority. Putin loves to lecture the West on international law, even as he dispatches ordinance to a brutal dictator who gasses his people. But ladies and gentlemen, international law is not immutable. It has evolved since the end of the Cold War, after the genocide in Rwanda, after the genocide in Bosnia, which I covered, after the massacre at Srebrenica. A serious debate was engaged in our societies on when intervention was legitimate, even if it was not legal. As Micah Ganassiev has observed, what law forbids, conscience may still command. We intervened on those grounds in Kosovo, rid the world of a dictator, and now the Balkan states are at peace and making their way into the European Union. 
yes, some countries actually do crave membership of the European Union. And Bosnia and Herzegovina just qualified for the World Cup, scene of event celebrations throughout the country I saw at war uh, almost 20 years ago. Post-Rwanda, post-Bosnia, post-Sierra Leone, an entire doctrine was developed called the Responsibility to Protect, or R2P. It stipulates that the protection of civilians can, under certain circumstances, be legitimate grounds for the use of force. It's been endorsed by most member states. If ever the responsibility to protect had any meaning, it had to be in Syria. I would say that we in the West have reached a broad consensus that in the 21st century, state frontiers can no longer be seen as watertight protection for war criminals or mass murderers. The fact that a conflict is internal does not give the parties any right to disregard the most basic rules of human conduct. Legality and legitimacy can part company. They have in Syria. It is worth recalling that the preamble to the UN Charter begins, we, the peoples of the United Nations, making clear from its very first phrase that after Auschwitz, after Treblinka, it was proclaimed in the name of the inhabitants, not the governments of the world. The United Nations in the 21st century must stand for the dignity and inalienable rights of every human being, not least the gas children of Zamalka. This, I think, is what Paddy Ashdown meant when he said after that parliamentary vote that Britain had failed to join, quote, an international coalition to stand up for international law. Yes, legitimacy can be so overwhelming as to have the force of legality. Well, the war's now a blur. We're tired of it. As Jonathan just said, it's faded into the background again. But it hasn't been static. There have been stages. It's evolved. A year into the uprising, in March 2012, the UNHCR registered just 30,000 refugees after one year. In March this year, a year later, it was at one million. Six months after that, we're at two million. Recently, the UNHCR commissioner declared, we've not seen a refugee outflow escalate at such a frightening rate since the Rwanda genocide almost 20 years ago. What do these numbers say, ladies and gentlemen? They say there was opportunity, and we blew it. We missed it. We in the West allowed the war to fester. We could have protected civilians from the brutality of the regime through humanitarian corridors. We could have made our support and recognition of the opposition meaningful by arming them early on. We could have imposed a no-fly zone to protect civilians. Instead, we offered worthy sentiments as Syrians died and fled in ever greater numbers. Then, when the festering was well and truly done, we invoked the presence of jihadist groups who'd come in during the festering as justification for our inaction. And at the last, on the eve of military strikes to punish Assad for his use of chemical weapons, we stumbled into a compromise that burnished his credentials. President Obama, a lucky man, got out of the hole, dug himself out of the hole he dug himself into. But I believe there will be a reckoning. Yes, now it seems Assad is giving up his chemical weapons. There's talk of diplomacy in Geneva. The Russians are being a little bit helpful. But ladies and gentlemen, this has been a shameful saga. We were right before we were wrong. The war will not end until Assad goes. There will be more atrocities. Do not mistake a lull for any semblance of a resolution. If any nation knows of betrayal, it's the Poles. So recall Milos's solemn words. You who harmed an ordinary man do not feel safe. The poet remembers. You may kill him, another will be born. 
deeds and words shall be recorded. Assad's slaughter will be recorded, as will our failure. I myself believe that once Assad started butchering his people on a large scale, within the first year of the war, we should have put in a humanitarian corridor and imposed a no-fly zone. I also think President Obama should not have backed down over chemical weapons use. But you, ladies and gentlemen, don't have to agree with me. You don't have to believe that to hold that the West has failed Syria. Failed Syria in the most basic regard. Our democracies schooled these last two decades in genocide and the legitimacy of international action to stop barbarism has left Syrians to be shot, then shelled, then bombed, then bombarded, then gassed by a despot to whom we have just given renewed legitimacy. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you for that. Before we hear from our next speaker, I want to uh, bring you word of the vote that you all participated in on your way in here tonight. This is the pre-vote before you'd been stirred and influenced by the uh, extraordinary rhetoric and oratory you're going to hear uh, this evening. It is, from my point of view, as sort of moderator, it is the ideal kind of outcome for this reason, that the largest number belongs to the don't knows. That means there are 43% of you who voted don't know as you came in, which means, for panellists, these are the people who are all to play for. These are the floating voters who you need to win over. So the voters you came in uh, for the motion that the West has failed Syria, 36%, just over one in three of you, uh, against the motion that the West has failed Syria, 21%, and as I say, don't knows, <clears throat> pardon me, 43%. So... We'll be looking to see if these four speakers can reduce that figure. And I should remind you now, when the uh, ballot boxes come around, the, you will have one of these in your hand. It says for and against. You have to break it down the middle and put in the box the card you want. And if you can't make up your mind or you're abstaining, you put the whole card in the box. But I'll give you another reminder of that later. For now, let's move on to the first speaker against the motion. She is... Uh, one of Britain's most distinguished commentators on the Middle East, first in journalism and now in the academy. She is the Professor of Middle East Policy Studies and Director of the Olive Tree Scholarship Programme at City University. Our first speaker against the motion, Rosemary Hollis. Thank you very much indeed. Ladies and gentlemen... We meet tonight to discuss a very sombre subject, so I'm not going to try and lighten the atmosphere with a joke, soften you up, bring you round, but I am going to bring you some relief. Our opponents tonight want to give us a great big guilt trip, and I am here to tell you that it is not the West that failed Syria. To argue that it were the West, that it is the West that failed Syria, is to assume that somehow it lies within the power of the West to fix Syria. What is the West, anyway? United States? Europe? NATO? 
These are not all powerful players, if they ever were. And after Afghanistan and Iraq, Western forces are not at all what they were. I think in the UK, there's a tendency to ignore the terrible toll that the United States Armed Forces has taken in Afghanistan and Iraq. The injuries, the using up of the National Guard, this is, these are not repeatable endeavors. So, don't assume that the West can do miracles. And what about the East? Where are the Syrians to fit in the mix of saving Syria? Where is Iran, Russia, Hezbollah, Iraq to feature in the saving of Syria? Where indeed Al-Qaeda? Can the West take them all on to save Syria? No. It is, of course, a complex situation. It was never a question of an evil dictator against a whole population. Assad, from the start, had and retains a support base, a significant support base, at home and beyond. Syrian armed forces made calculations from the word go, and from the word go, there were not mass defections. So we're talking about taking on a substantial opponent, if you wish to focus on Assad. The security services, the several overlapping muhabarat in Syria, couldn't possibly abandon ship because they would know that they were so implicated in the crimes of the regime that they either lived or died with it. And then the minorities in Syria, those who said, we may not like him, but we fear the alternative. We need to be safe, and up till now, this regime has guaranteed us safety. If you take him down, are you going to protect us? And the Syrian opposition. At the beginning of the uprising in Syria, they wanted to own their own revolution. They said so. They looked at what was happening and what then transpired in Libya. And they said, we do not want the West to come in and do our revolution for us. Thank you. We'll take some support. Thank you. But it is only over time and as they struggled so bitterly on the battlefield that their requests for Western assistance increased. But at the beginning, 
this was not to be made in America. So where then the legitimacy for intervention in year one of this horrible war? There was none, as the Russians so irritatingly pointed out. Now, what about those lessons from Afghanistan and Iraq? We've been told repeatedly Syria isn't Iraq. The, the situation is totally different, and it certainly isn't Afghanistan. But one of the lessons we have to learn from those two benighted countries is if you break it, you fix it. And if you arm the rebels, or possibly do even more, you actually help them topple Assad, what then? Who or what comes next? And there's where I'm saying, even if you had the capacity to march on Damascus, even if you wanted to use your capacity to march on Damascus, what are you going to do when you've taken that regime? We know something about the consequences of toppling a regime from Iraq. And it is not within the power a bunch of non-Arabic-speaking foreigners in tanks or on the sidelines cheering on the opposition, it is not within the power of the West to impose a transition against opponents to a transition. You can only work with the players on the ground, but all of them and their patrons around the region. And, as it happens, the Western powers did actually try to galvanize the opposition into a unified front that the Western players could get behind. They tried repeatedly. It was embarrassing. It's not within their power to make of the Syrian opposition a cohesive, viable replacement for the Assad regime. And let us look briefly at the military options. Arm the nice guys? How exactly? Without losing control. No fly zones? Where? The rebels were and are still fighting inside towns. There is no clear territorial base for those rebels. And what cost in casualties? A military intervention from the air only to take out Syrian military targets would inevitably result not only in Western casualties amongst the pilots, but also in Syrian casualties. And then the refugee question. It's a devastating sight these people fleeing Syria and destabilizing the neighboring countries. The long-term solution for the refugees, however, requires ultimately a political solution and resolution. And Kofi Annan and now Lakta Brahimi have said there is no solution to Syria but a political one, and you have to have everybody with a stake and with a determination to have a say in the future of Syria involved in that political solution. And one last point about this chemical weapons issue. Whoever used them created a turning point. The US threatened a limited strike, 
which was not a hollow gesture, and the Russians and Iranians changed tune. And now we have Assad agreeing to let in the international experts and let him have his moment back in the fold, which he may think it is. How else but with his cooperation are you actually going to get rid of these beastly weapons? And this has opened a possibility for an inclusive approach and the makings of a political solution. So this is not a failure. This is progress. We're not there yet, but the West has not yet failed Syria. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. If our first uh, two speakers are both, from their different perspectives, experienced observers and analysts of this region, our next two are people who have been on the inside as crucial decisions, even decisions of peace and war, have been made. Our second speaker for the motion uh, served as the foreign policy and defence advisor to the Prime Minister, then Tony Blair, at Downing Street from 2003 to 2007. Thereafter, uh, from 2007 to 2012, he was Britain's ambassador to the United States. Our second speaker for the motion that the West has failed Syria, Sir Nigel Scheinwald. Well, thank you very much, uh, Chairman, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And it did occur to me um, that Syria was a good subject for, um, for Intelligence Squared because both sides tonight uh, want you, the audience, to undergo a Damascene conversion before you cast your votes a second time a little bit later on. Um, I want to say a few words about what this debate is not about. Um, first of all, it's not about whether the West should use force uh, directly in Syria. None of us here, uh, including Roger and myself, believes that there should be now or in the future Western boots on the ground uh, in Syria. I want to just dispel um, that idea from the start. Nor is it actually about what our policy should be in the future. Um, the truth is that there are very few good options available now. There were more a couple of years ago. Um, but even then, um, none was guaranteed to succeed because the truth is that the international community has found um, the situation in Syria exceptionally difficult to handle. And lastly, it's not about whether only the West is responsible for today's tragedy. Of course, we're not. There's Russia, there's Iran, there's the other Arab states, and of course, the prime responsibility lies with President Assad and his regime. I think the question before us is have the West's policies and actions contributed in a material way to the desperate plight of the Syrian people today? And my answer, sadly, is yes. I'm not saying that they've failed, that we've failed, against some high, abstract, um, textbook definition of foreign policy behaviour, but I'm simply comparing what we say our aims and objectives have been with what we've done and what the situation on the ground shows us. So I think we've got to do a bit of an audit of Western policy, and I think there are three things to look at. And the first, and both um, the previous speakers have mentioned this, is the humanitarian disaster today. Over 100,000 people dead. Nearly 7 million people in Syria who are in need, according to the agencies. That's about the population of Scotland and Northern Ireland combined. 
over two million refugees outside Syria. And as Roger said, that's an eightfold, that's a, a, an eightfold increase over a year ago. And a million of those are children. And these camps around the region are becoming mini-cities. Every week we hear things are getting worse. So by any standards, this is a massive humanitarian tragedy. But the West and the rest of the international community are simply not responding to the scale of this crisis. Now in this, I do exclude Britain because we are doing more than our fair share. But France is only doing about half its real share. And that applies to most of the other European countries too. Japan, it's about a fifth of its fair share. The UN's latest appeal, $5 billion, is only half funded. And the UN has more people in Syria dealing with chemical weapons than dealing with the humanitarian situation. So the hard fact for all of us to face is that a large chunk of the international community is looking the other way. Now we need to get on to policy, the second point. And here I think Western policy has been a muddle. We're trying to ride two horses at the same time. On the one hand, we've said that Assad has, go, has to go and that he and his closest minions will have to face the International Criminal Court. On the other hand, we say the only solution is through a political negotiation. But we also know that that will only happen with the support of Russia, which is the co-convener of the meetings in Geneva with America, and we know that Russia won't accept that precondition that Assad must first leave. So we've had a standoff. And, and ironically, we now rely on Assad's cooperation to get the Russian deal on chemical weapons implemented. That is important, but the result, as Jonathan said at the beginning, is that the core issue um, of uh, what Assad is doing to his country is fading away. As for the UN, as William Hague himself said last year, in the eyes of the overwhelming majority of the world, this council has failed in its responsibilities to the Syrian people. And just a few days ago, Saudi Arabia refused to take its seat in the Security Council for exactly that reason. Now, of course, this isn't just the West's fault. Of course, it's to do with Russia and China's obdurate protection of Syria. But the problem is that we fudged the issue. We haven't known whether we wanted to work with Russia or go all out for Assad to leave. And that fudge is apparent, as Roger said, over the, the issue of military help for the rebels. Now, I don't actually think today that Western arms supplies can now make a difference. I think the opposition is too split and the jihadist groups are too powerful. But it's worth pausing on whether that would have been the case a couple of years ago if we'd acted earlier, when Assad was weaker and when the Al-Qaeda and other groups had not entered the fray. The truth is, the longer this goes on, the more destabilizing it is for the region and the more dangerous for the West. Um, the conflict risks inflaming the Sunni-Shia split throughout the region. While we stand back, others intervene. The Syrian regime is being propped up by Iran, by Russia, and by, um, by Lebanese Hezbollah. Syria is now the number one destination for jihadist terrorists around the world. And there may be a couple of hundred people of British origin with British links who are there now. And some of them are going to return here and try and use their terrorist training uh, and experience in the years ahead. And that is going to be a major long-term security threat for us. Now, we should have been able to see some of that coming, and we could have acted earlier to help the moderate opposition and the Syrian Free Army. And we did promise a lot. We promised in the summer to send all necessary materiel and equipment for the opposition, 
and at our and French insistence, the EU lifted its arms embargo on Syria earlier in the year. Why did we do that? Unfortunately, we did it just before the political tide in the UK turned. We have not been able to do anything, and the American help has been very, very little. Now, in a sense, I'm not complaining about that. Arms supplies are a, a controversial issue. What I'm saying is that you can't say that and not expect the opposition in Syria to take what we say seriously and to base their behavior on it. And the opposition have made clear that they feel totally let down by the West behavior on this and other issues. So in conclusion, I completely understand the psychological and political backdrop here in the UK. I understand the distrust of government, and I understand the profound war weariness after Iraq and Afghanistan. And that might tempt us to avoid looking at ourselves in the mirror over Syria. But that wouldn't be honest, and I am asking you this evening, ladies and gentlemen, to be honest about what's happened uh, in Syria. We've tried to have it both ways, but unfortunately we've got the trends wrong, and we failed both ourselves and the Syrian people. Twenty years ago, Lord Ashdown was asking us to look into our hearts when we surveyed the inter-ethnic conflict uh, in Bosnia. He said, as Roger mentioned this summer, that he was ashamed of the UK appearing to do nothing in the face of Syria's horrors. Uh, I agree with that, and I can't see how we can look at today's situation and deny that the West has failed Syria. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, our fourth and final speaker uh, is the former leader of the Liberal Democrats and crucially for this purpose, and I think you've heard it referred to a couple of times there, served as the International High Representative for Bosnia and Herzegovina from 2002 to 2006 when he advocated decisive action by the international community. I thought I would perform a public service here because two of our speakers have referred to these tweets by our next speaker, and so I'm just going to read them out so that, that we've actually got them here. Uh, the full wording was, we are a hugely diminished country this morning. This was after that Commons vote. MPs cheered last night, Assad and Putin this morning. Farage too, I think Nigel Farage. There's not another one, is there? As we plunge towards isolationism. In 50 years, trying to serve my country, I have never felt so depressed, stroke ashamed. Britain's answer to the Syrian horrors, none of our business. And those tweets were widely picked up and discussed. Uh, as I say, our final speaker and the second speaker against the motion that the West has failed Syria, please welcome Paddy Ashdown. Utterly brilliant tweets, by the way. <laughs> Diplomacy, ladies and gentlemen, is not just the art of morality, it's also the art of the possible. So let us begin in the areas upon which we would agree. We would agree the situation in Syria is appalling. Tell you what, let's cut it short. I'm the, I'm the president of UNICEF UK. I know how awful it is very well indeed. So let's just play this little thought for you. You invent the adjective about how awful things are there, and I will agree with you. But that's not the question. The question is, what can we do more than we have done? Diplomacy is the art not just of morality, 
but the art of the possible. Let me agree also with Nigel and with Roger that the early part of the diplomacy of this was very badly handled. Instead of making our intervention about, about humanitarianism, we made it about regime change. It was a very stupid thing to do, inviting the Russians to participate in getting rid of the one person who is their friend in the Middle East. And we did what we've done before. Instead of building a wider consensus, we led a Western-led posse uh, to do things which were based on the impossible. Can we intervene? And the reason, Roger, that we did that was precisely because Downing Street and Western leaders believed, as Roger appears to believe, that this is a rerun of Bosnia. No, it isn't. I was with you, Roger. I saw Bosnia up close and personal. I was deeply involved in it. The failure to understand that the West is not in the same position as it was when we intervened in Bosnia and Kosovo, for reasons I will explain, and Syria is not the same as Bosnia and Kosovo, is the very reason which led us into those early mistakes. You see, there is a rule, it seems to me, that is accepted by most value systems, which goes something like this. If you should and you can, it is a sin not to. But if you should and you cannot, it is not. By the way, if you look at Thomas Aquinas and the Just War, you'll find that he assembles five basic principles when it is proper to have a just war, in this case intervene, and the principles apply to our present circumstances. One, there is an egregious breach of international law. Two, the effect of that spreads wider than the country concerned to affect the stability and peace of the wider region or indeed the world. Three, you have exhausted all diplomatic possibilities. Four, the means by which you wish to intervene is commensurate and proportionate with the sin that's being committed. Five, it is legal. And six, please note six. Thomas Aquinas said, that long, Aquinas said it that long ago. There has to be a reasonable prospect of success. And if you can believe there is, then you can go with these two. Note that Roger didn't propose anything. Long on morality, short on solutions. The only solution that I heard was that we should have safe havens. Remember them? And we should have aid corridors. Remember them? I do. He does too. You don't have them unless you can protect them. That is the lesson of Srebrenica. Surely you understand that, Roger. I mean, the truth about it is that if you were to invent this, if you were to bring this into effect, who is going to protect those? And if nobody protects them, you are replaying Srebrenica all over again. This is not the same as Bosnia and Kosovo. And let me see if I can explain the three reasons why it isn't. First of all, the geopolitical consequences of Syria are far wider, far more complex. This is not actually about Syria. Syria is the front line in a wider war. And that wider war is an attempt to radicalize the Sunni Ummah as a preparation to a wider regional Sunni-Shia conflict. That's actually what this is about. Syria is a front line in the same war you see being fought out in Lebanon, in Egypt, in Tunisia, in Libya, in Mali. That's actually what you're intervening in. Do you want to get yourself engaged in that? And by the way, when Russia says no, she says no not just because Assad is the only friend they have left. She says no because she is suffering from exactly the same thing in the Islamic republics that run up to the Caucasus, the Dagestan and Chechnya. You are looking here at the possibility of a widening conflict which will engulf the whole of the Middle East. And there's a real possibility, ladies and gentlemen, 
that we will get instrumentalized on the side of the Sunni, and Russia gets herself instrumentalized on the side of Iran and Assad and the Shia. Is that what you want? That is the consequence. This never existed in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Never. And the second reason, and Rosemary's touched on it very clearly, is because we're not in the same position. Sorry, guys. Actually, when we come to think about foreign affairs today, we must realize the new position we're occupying in the world. We don't have armed forces that are capable of doing this any longer. We could not mount, just by the West alone, an intervention on the scale of Bosnia. It was difficult enough then, and even more so in Kosovo. Now it would be frankly impossible, as you see Western defense budgets reduced and diminished, unless we have friends, unless you build a wider coalition. And the third reason is, I'm sorry about this, Roger, but the West is no longer in the totally dominant ascendant position it was in, in Bosnia and Kosovo. When if the West acted together, it could propose and dispose in every corner of the world at will. It could ride roughshod, as it did in Kosovo, over a UN Security Council resolution. We no longer live in a monopolar world, we live in a multipolar world. A multipolar world we share with others. And what that means is that we have now, and you may think this is a good thing, perhaps I do too, to listen to the UN Security Council. We cannot act without the UN Security Council's agreement. Absent that, there is no legal basis for action, which is also practical. Absent Russia and China's agreement to that, we could not act. Was it the West's fault? We tried, we put those resolutions forward. No, it was Russia and China who blocked that. Who is responsible for the sclerosis of the UN that um, Nigel spoke about? Not the West. That's Russia and China. If you want to find someone to blame, do not blame the West in this. You may blame the East. We could do one thing, and I'm sad that our parliament chose not to. When Assad crossed this fatal line, the use of chemical weapons, when he broke the single greatest pillar of international law that's existed since 1920, an absolute prohibition on the use of weapons of mass destruction in the form of chemical or biological warfare, we decided that we would act and we were right to do so. We were not acting to intervene, we were acting to uphold international law. And it's a matter of the greatest sadness to me that my parliament failed to vote to do that. You know, you can be proud of parliament's ability to stand up to the executive and deeply ashamed of the position that it took. And that's how I felt the next day. And it was because the United States, and God help us, France as well, were serious about taking action to uphold international law, not to intervene, but to hold international, uphold international law, that finally Putin and Assad decided to move. And that has given us an opportunity now to have Western inspectors in, to have a real prospect of taking, for God's sake, the one thing we can take out of this terrible conflict, and the widening conflict too, chemical weapons and weapons of, biological, of a biological nature. Now, is it necessarily the case that's going to succeed? No. But it's opened up a whole new dialogue a new dialogue with Iran, the chances of moving to an agreement not just about Syria, but much wider than that. Is that certain? No, ladies and gentlemen, but it is possible. And diplomacy is the art of the possible. Anything else was simply an exercise in morality without being underpinned by the possibility of success.
No more, no less. We haven't failed. We've done the best we can. Not I have to say the House of Commons, but the West. If you want to blame somebody, blame the East. <laughs> <clears throat> Thank you. Well, thanks to Paddy Ashton and to all four of uh, our speakers. I think we've absolutely had the arguments laid out in cr with crystal clarity and some eloquence uh, there. So now it's come uh, the moment for me to open up uh, our debate to all of you here um, and get as many contributions as I can. I'm going to take them in groups and I'm going to bring them back here when I can. Uh, there should be people with microphones. Uh, there, well, there you are, but you've got your hand up early and there's a microphone coming to you. And, and when, when you finish, why don't you pass it along to there? And is there another person here? Anyone over here? There's a standing mic up there that I'm completely blinded. So if uh, I can't see the air at all, but if you are up in that uh, in the gods there, approach the standing microphone if you can see it, and I will try and be less than daz less dazzled than I am now. Let's uh, hear your question. Thank you to the panelists for uh, all of their uh, comments this evening. Um, my question, I suppose I want to almost uh, flip the topic on its head to say, has the West failed in its own self-interest? And to what extent have actually our failure to get involved more in the Syrian crisis been a failure of just uh, the most sort of basic uh, natural desires to look after what is in the self-interest of a nation? Has Britain failed in its own self-interest by not getting involved? So to, so to be clear, you mean has Britain let itself down? Its own self-interest yeah, has been damaged? Has Britain failed itself in the way that it's dealt with the situation? Okay, it's hurt itself. Good, thank you. Let's um, pass that along. And if there's somebody here, then I will go to you, but otherwise let's hear from you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, my question relates to the definition of the West and the West's role. Um, Diplomacy is the art of the possible. Has the West been sufficiently imaginative about what is possible, what was possible? Um, mm -hmm. And has, it, has the West significantly registered the fact that the alliances of the past within the UN now have yeah. to change and be yeah. expanded or recreated? And, and just give us a f sense of what possibilities you're thinking of that haven't been explored. Well, I'm just wondering, <laughs> it's a big, big question, but I'm wondering whether actually our conception of what international crises need now mm. has had to change. And actually within the West, within Britain and within the US, yeah. we're still stuck in the old world of the West being the predominant global power. Exactly. Thank you. A very, very interesting contribution there. Don't I'm going to come to you in a minute. In fact, if we can bring the microphone to the gentleman here. And while I'm doing it, is somebody there? Just call, because I can't see you if you are in the top floor there. No. OK. Hello. There we are. Uh, okay, my name is Nadim Shade. My heart is with the people who are against the motion. This side. This side, because I'm a Rosemary Hollis groupie. And <laughs> <laughs> He's a former colleague. <laughs> 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 Rosemary Lord, wants to point out that Lord, you're a former Lord colleague, Ashtar, but I like it as a Rosemary Hollis groupie. I'm yeah, going to leave that's that. That's not allowed. <laughs> Lord Ashdown was our president at Chatham House. So. But my mind should be with them because they used rationality, uh, while the other side used emotion and, and morals. But I want to ask them, I want to question their rationality. Uh, Lord Ashdown, diplomacy is not the art of the possible. Diplomacy is, the, is a battle of wills. And when you don't have the assurance and the possibility to battle that will, you lose. This is what diplomacy is, is, is about, and loss uh, costs a lot of a, a lot of a lot of lives. Uh, to Dr. Hollis, I want to say that lessons from Iraq are very important, 
But the lessons from Iraq before 2003 are much more important than after 2003. If you calculate the casualties, the destruction, and the, the devastation of Iraq before 2003, which includes allowing Saddam in 1991 mm -hmm. to crush an opposition which we encouraged, which the West encouraged to rise, okay. and where he killed in one month more than Bashar al-Assad has killed in three years. So okay. I think these are the, the, the lessons we have to question, not the ones after 2003. Thank you. Lots of very good questions. I will come around for more. And if the person up there wants to make themselves known or otherwise haunt me throughout the evening, they can. Um, let's, uh, let, let's just go to, why, why don't we put that very last one while it's fresh in our minds to you, Dr. Hollis, that the real lesson of Iraq is actually the period before action was taken to dislodge Saddam, that if you leave the guy there long enough, he can carry on killing, etc. Mm. You heard your colleague Nadim Shahadi. What's your response to that first question? Well, I don't want to go over too many um, old arguments here, but really, it's a bit selective so far when a dictator is taken out by a Western intervention. And that's what I'm focusing on. The way the debate was framed in terms of what intervention by uh, the West was appropriate in the case of Syria was redolent with this assumption that the Western players could turn Syria, this time through proxies, because they were afraid of Iraq, they didn't want to do it firsthand, through proxies they could turn it into a better place. Mm. And that is an argument that I simply don't understand. So I'm not talking about how many people were killed during Saddam's reign compared with how many people died in the process of getting rid of him and trying to replace him with stability, which is ongoing. I think that's a stupid numbers game. And, I, and frankly, I think it's a fundamental principle of international politics that if you decide to change the regime of another country in alliance with some people inside that country, you bear some responsibility for the consequences of that regime change. And I don't see much hope of the Western players, united or severally, uh, pulling off a good job in Syria because of the record so far. Thank you. Um, we could, we'll, I'm sure, come back to this one. Uh, Nigel Scheinwald, I want you to pick up that very first question about whether... The, the damage has actually been to Britain's own self-interest, among other things, that the West has not just uh, failed Syria, but maybe even failed itself, particularly perhaps from the vantage point of Britain. Well, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, if you look at, if you look at Syria, maybe unlike Libya, where we did take action in 2011, um, if you look at Syria, it is in a very, very strategically important spot with some neighbours who are um, combustible themselves and have difficult and complex relationships in the region. Um, Israel, Turkey, uh, a lot of other you know, um, extremely important neighbours in the, in the region. Um, this is an area in which the UK has long-standing links, long-standing relationships, and a long-standing interest. I think Rosemary Hollis, in her academic work, talks about the, the way in which European and Middle Eastern fortunes are intertwined. We 
in our history are intertwined with that, with that region. We have a strategic interest in stability and in much greater calm, and we haven't had it, obviously, for a very long time in the region. But our strategic interest is manifested particularly in the extremism, which the longer this, this conflict goes on, is getting worse and worse, with the jihadis who are becoming more and more influential uh, in Syria and starting to represent a threat not just in the region but to ourselves. It, this, this is going to be exported, um, as it was in Iraq a few years yeah. ago, exported to the West. So, of course, we have um, an increasing strategic and self-interest in, what, in what's going on, in addition to the earlier interest in giving support from the sidelines. I think Rosemary Hollis is right. Support from the sidelines to the uh, Syrian revolution, because we rightly decided we couldn't um, influence that directly ourselves, and nor should we. I'm not advocating it. Do you want to say a half sentence more than that? No, I'm not right in saying it has to be through proxies. I'm saying even through proxies, you bear responsibility for the consequences of your action. All right. Um, Paddy Ashton, there were several questions put to you, and I want you to just focus on two of them. One, you were nodding away all the way through this idea of the West had been yeah. a, a guilty of a failure of the imagination. There are other possibilities here. And just say something about that. But then also <clears throat> Nadim Shahadi did ask you that the, he <clears throat> said, you know, uh, you've defined diplomacy as the art of the possible. I think it's always politics that's defined as the art of the possible. He said diplomacy is this cl clash of wills, a battle of wills, and if you don't have the yeah, will, but, you lose. But you can only have will about things that are possible. <laughs> so I don't find it difficult to answer that very interesting uh, false dichotomy. Let, let me, <laughs> if I may say so, if I may with say so gently respect. and politely, with the greatest <laughs> possible respect. Look, I, You've just uh, here, lost the Paddy Ashdown group. If he was a Rosemary Hollis group, he is unlikely to be mine. Uh, here's the, but but the, you led to a very interesting point here, which is, you know, I'm not so much interested in how we failed in Iraq. I think there will be many tomes written about that, but I am interested in the consequences of Iraq and of Afghanistan. And Rosemary put her finger on it. The world is not the same now as a result of Iraq and Afghanistan for three basic reasons. The myth of Western infallibility has been disastrously exposed to the rest of the world, including to ourselves. Secondly, um, the moral case for intervention has been disastrously undermined. Uh, and thirdly, we have been forced to face up fa uh, face-to-face with the consequences of when we intervene for the wrong reasons in the wrong way. Um, and make mistakes, as we have done consistently in Iraq and Afghanistan. So the world is not the same as it was. And the second reason is that the world is not the same as it was is because of the economic crisis. I mean, we do not, in the West, represent the kind of power, economic power, and that inevitably has a consequence for political and, and military power as well, as we did. We now share the world with other centres. And this is where we come back to the... Um, with other polarities. And this is where we come back to the very interesting question... We have to, if we're going to have sensible foreign policy in this country, we have to come to terms with the realities of the new world in which we exist. And it's not the world of Bosnia and Kosovo, I'm afraid. It's a very different world. And here's the bottom line, it seems to me, that if we want to get things done in the world in the future, we have to reach out beyond the circle of our Atlantic friends. We have to build wider alliances. 
And that's where I think the world is failing, the West is failing in its imagination at present. I what other allies could you imagine specifically well, on uh, Syria? Uh, okay, well, let me, let me just come... But briefly, because I do want to bring in Roger Cohn and then take uh, well, well, of course. Um, <laughs> we, we, we could have very easily... Well, I said we started the diplomacies wrong. We started it by making it about... about um, about the removal of um, Assad instead of, as we did in Libya, beginning it on the humanitarian front. We'd have built much wider coalitions if we'd have made it clear that it was humanitarian. And the second one is that we had um, insisted um, that it would be led as a Western posse. Of course, it found more difficult for others to, 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 uh, to join in. The technique, it seems to me, in the future is to try and build your coalitions and build them beyond the Atlantic Club. You've had to do that to solve the world's economic Yep. Problems. We've moved from the G8 to the G20. And increasingly, that's going to have to happen in international affairs. Okay. My guess is, and here I finish, my guess is, go back to Canning, and you'll find that Canning once said, Britain has fixed interests, but not fixed allies. And I think as you move away from a monopolar world dominated by the West to a multipolar world, the trick is going to be to build alliances with others about the things you want to do, so that there'll be shorter-term alliances that are specifically designed okay. to, to cope with that particular problem. That's where the failure of imagination seems to lie. OK, thank you. Let's hear from you, Roger Cohen, because Pat Ashton, during his opening speech, did directly say to you, you must know that these protect, you know, safe corridors, humanitarian corridors, would require to be uh, you know, armed protection. But the other point that he said, throws back to you is this. He says, the moral case for intervention has been so undermined since those days when both of you were in the Balkans, etc. And you can't now make those principled arguments in quite the same way because people around the world after Iraq and after Afghanistan ain't buying it. Well, yes, Paddy did rather single me out. And uh, <laughs> it's, it it's, it's, been interesting, it's been interesting to hear or see Paddy reinvented um, as a fierce advocate of almost Kissingerian realpolitik, and using the word morality uh, in an almost disparaging no. way. No. Uh, morality... Morality is men, women, and children. Uh, morality, when it comes to Syria, is more than 100,000 dead. It's all these kids and families in these camps around Syria who've been forced to flee. It's the accumulated disaster of the last two and a half years. And I think even on the grounds of Paddy Ashton's newfound realpolitik, you have to say that the situation in Syria is a complete disaster. Uh, the conflict has spread beyond the... The situation he described of this war between Sunni uh, and Shia was not the situation at the outset. This began as an uprising against a ferocious tyranny. That's what it was at the outset. And it morphed into something else. And it's because the West said one thing, or it's because, in large part, the West failed to follow through on so many fronts that the war has been allowed to spread um, in this disastrous way. Just a word, finally, on the changed world. Yes, the world's changed. Uh, I agree with Paddy. Of course, we're not where we were 20 years ago. The United States is less powerful. China is rising. The rest is rising, although, interestingly, of late, our economies seem to be growing a bit faster than some in Brazil, etc. But, in my view, 
American red lines still matter. The United States is by far still the most important power on Earth. And if we go off into some kind of fairyland of imagining alliances in the East, you know, we'll do something nice with China or nice with uh, I don't know who, uh, we are going to end up in nobody's world with a lot of violence and danger around us. Your Kissinger in <coughs> fairyland, Fadi <laughs> <laughs> Well, first of all, I said that, of course, foreign policy is underpinned my morality, but it has to be relevant to possible the actions that are possible as well. And to pick out one or other of those is, I think, unreasonably um, unfair, Roger, which is not something I'd ever accuse you of normally. Um, <laughs> the, uh, so the two go hand in hand. I mean, you can have all the morality if you like. If it won't work, it ain't going to work. Full stop. Your morality is dead on the ground. Um, on the question of uh, the, brief, fairy, brief. the fairyland um, coalitions, well, then, how come that America has had to reach out to China, has had to reach out to others to help it solve the world economic situation, the world economic problems. The truth is, building alliances beyond the Western club is now the only way you can get things done. That's not fairyland, that's reality. Thank you. Questioner here has been waiting, and we're going to take a, a few more, and uh, let's go with you first. I'm Domitila Sagramozo from the Department of War Studies at King's College in London. Uh, thank you very much. I thought it was a really fascinating debate. I would like to ask those who are in favour of the motion uh, if they can really explain in detail what exactly they expect the West to do. You made a very powerful and strong case in favour as, as to why intervention is necessary. But your arguments as to what exactly should be done now are a lot weaker. It's not clear whether you're supporting primarily a kind of humanitarian support, whether you're uh, arguing in favour of arming the rebels, which you said you are not, uh, toppling the regime, how, especially in light of the difficulties that were mentioned by the other side, you know, taking that into account, taking into consideration the risks of an expansion of the conflict, you know, what exactly needs to be done? Thank you. Thank you. Very specific question. We've got several now on this side. That's very good. There is somebody up there. Let's Thank hear you. that voice. Excellent. Oh. Thank Thank you for an excellent, enlightening debate. I was just curious, picking up Lord Ashdown's uh, comment on imagination, whether we in the West had to wait for a more sensible Iranian regime that we could talk to and deal with before we could take any really useful action. Mm. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to take all of these down. I'm I want to make sure I get everyone in as I can. Is there a microphone that's floating around this, or is it just the one? Okay, well, let's hear these two who've already got the microphone, then we're going to try and get it to you. Yeah. Okay, so I have a question that's directed um, at the opposition. Um, it seems like Lord Ashdown has really kind of played the blame game with Russia and China, um, but would the two of you say that the West has failed Syria in the sense that it has failed to come up with a more global plan of action based on compromise with the East instead of blaming the East for everything in Syria? Thank you. Could you pass the microphone just two rows down in front of you? Gentleman there with his hand up, that's it, because it's proximate, and then I'm going to get you, yeah. Uh, yes, I'd like to just continue from the point made um, by the lady down here. We've heard from the proposition uh, the idea that had the West had some sort of intervention um, of whatever description a couple of years ago, things could have been better. Is there not also the possibility, and I'm drawing on, I suppose, everybody's speeches, that a couple of years ago, had there been some sort of intervention, Russia, uh, China potentially, they could have become similarly engaged on the other 
side operating through proxies and could this not have made the situation even more difficult and even worse than it is Thank right you. now? A very clear question. Thank you. I know you've had your hand up, but I want to make sure this block does not feel disadvantaged. This is to the proposition. Um, just to want side, to, yeah. Yes, um, I just want to ask you, do you honestly believe that if the tables were turned, the East would even contemplate helping us? Thank you. And who have you got in mind for the East? You mean Russia, etc.? You mean Russia? Yeah. Or, or yeah. You rather than Syria itself? Okay, yeah, question from you. Uh, my question to the um, opposition is, um, you're talking about how um, the... The problem in Syria is only going to escalate and spread around the Middle Eastern region. Should we not at least attempt to intervene now before it is completely beyond the realms of possibility that um, the West could do anything to stop the terrible violence that will happen in the Middle East if this conflict between the two Muslim factions was to grow even bigger than it is now? Interesting. Thank you. I, I know there are others. I'm going to take that group now because we've already got quite a lot there. Um, very specific question about Iran, Rosemary Hollis, whether we should be perhaps waiting for a change in the complexion of that regime there. What do you think? Well, the questioner said, do we have to wait for a more sensible regime? We've had a, re a change of regime. We have a moment of opportunity to see what's possible. You're and talking about the, the new president <coughs> Uh, the new president, but also uh, the new team that he's brought to the talks about their nuclear program, the uh, technocrats that are now in charge uh, of writing an economy which is in freefall in Iran, there is a moment of opportunity. It doesn't mean you have to like the guys. And I think there's a misunderstanding about uh, building alliances, as Paddy Ashdown was saying. I think uh, it might better be put, you see what deals can be made. Uh, to achieve answers to specific problems. You don't have to be in one alliance block on every single issue. And the question about, uh, from over here, about wouldn't, isn't there the distinct possibility that if uh, the West had waded in in year one, it would rile the allies of the Assad regime? I couldn't agree more. I did try to make that one of the planks of my argument. Okay. Um, let's go to this side of the table. The, the very first question was, what exactly would you have the West do? You've talked about the things, you, you know, things they shouldn't have done. And I did notice you were quite careful, as befits a diplomat, uh, to say you're not calling for boots on the ground, but you do leave the door open to other forms of military uh, intervention other than ground troops. So, Nigel Scheinwald, what exactly would you have the West do? We concentrated on that, I think, because the motion is um, the West has failed Syria. The motion is about where we are today and, um, and about our conduct over the past um, two and a half years. That's what we're debating, uh, what's gone on until, until now. Um, and, of course, it's fair to ask what would happen from now on in. And I think there are three things that we should be doing. I think on the humanitarian side, it's very obvious that Western countries, not the UK, but that... There are other countries um, that Western countries need to do much more to meet the targets set by the UN and the humanitarian community. That's very obvious. This is a, a number one um, humanitarian emergency in the world today. Um, secondly, um, I think we have to accept the reality that the eggs should be put in the basket of a political negotiation. Um, if this can work at the meeting of the core group tomorrow and, um, and in November, that would be excellent. I think the worry is that the opponents of Assad um, are, feeling, um, uh, are feeling weaker 
and, and less supported as a result of what happened in the summer. Um, and it's much less likely that he'll compromise when he comes to Geneva. But let's, let's test that. And as for alliances, I think that what Lord Ashdown said was too sweeping. I think one of the things that the West has tried to do um, over the past couple of years is use support and alliance with the Arab countries much more um, as, the, as the bulwark in their efforts, both in, uh, in Libya but also, but also in Syria. The Arab world, the, the immediate neighbors of Syria, are in this with us. They agree with us about what needs to be done. They disagree about tactics. They disagree about which group to support. There isn't unity of that. But there is unity in terms of broad support for, um, for, what's, for what's happening. Okay, and, on, and on the military side, um, I think Roger mentioned the two things that might have been tried. They are um, definitely to have tried to give some support, some military advice and support um, to the rebels earlier on. As I say, I don't believe that would work today. Um, and I think that using Turkey early on, back in 2011, it is possible to imagine some sort of um, humanitarian zone um, in, the, uh, in the north of Syria. I understand what Paddy Ashdan said, but there was a successful um, safe zone uh, in Iraq in the, in the uh, aftermath of the first Iraq war in the 1990s. This is not impossible, and I would have given that responsibility primarily to Turkey and to other regional and powers. You're, you're speaking in the past tense that would have, you could have done this. What about right now? I think on the military side, it's yeah. very difficult to see uh, an, op an option today because um, the, the option that we were looking at of a limited strike in relation to chemical weapons is for the moment off the table, and I can't see it coming back. I'm going to take a final round of three before you bring it back, but just before could, I do that... Can I just you're, you're answer gonna the gentleman here um, about if we'd gone in earlier, there would have been okay, the, the uh, Russians... No, I wanted to put a version oh, of oh, sorry. Have you been gone? You know, you go yeah. ahead with it. No, I, I, just, I just wanted to say, sir, that... The fact is, the Russians are in there big time. I mean, the Russians have been arming Assad most energetically uh, over the past year. And if you look at the arc of Assad's fortunes, um, they are definitely uh, on the rise. Uh, and they're on the rise because he is getting support, materiel, and so on, from, not only from Russia, but also from Iran, whereas we have talked a lot and done, and done very little. And um, this is a significant fact of the war. And if we had acted otherwise, we would not be in this situation today where Assad, after the immense brutality he has shown, uh, is in the ascendancy. He is in the ascendancy um, precisely because Russia and Iran have done more for him than we have done for the opposition we pledged to support. Thank you. Really briefly, Paddy Ashton, because I do want to get another round in. Um, you said that this is, we've got to realise that we wouldn't just be intervening in Syria. This is a wider conflict, a Sunni Shia conflict around the it world. It has the potential. Hold on. And then, well, the questioner put it to you that actually, if anything, that's an argument for acting now, because step in now, however bad it is, because it will only get much bigger and much yeah. worse. So intervene now. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to come back to one, two of the others as but well. I know you're in a, in your, in a, in a, in a second, <laughs> in a second, Johnny. I won't, yeah. uh, I won't uh, push against your chairmanship. Um, <laughs> the um, no, I mean, of course, it might have been possible to do it. But now let's consider what the other possibilities were. If you are intervening in a wider conflict between the Sunni and the Shia, and we had intervened earlier, um, what <laughs> guarantee can you have that the Russians would not have intervened on the other side of the Shia? And that would have had to a much, much wider escalation with now Russia engaged on one side and us on the other. So my own view is that it was never possible for us to intervene in a sensible fashion. 
provide weapons, but how do you know where they go to? This is um, Al-Qaeda dominated on many cases. These are no respecters of civil rights. Um, they are now. not casual about, um, about killing others. So whatever you do, you have to calculate what the possibilities are. If you'd intervened earlier, you might have been able to stop it. Personally, I think that's unlikely. But okay. the much greater danger would have been that you would have, in, you would have in, uh, in, involved yourself in a wider conflict, which may well have brought in the Russians on the Sunni side. Not something you want to do. Thank you. The clock is running away with us. I know there are people who want to get in, but the two people who have microphones, I'm afraid, are going to be our last two before we sum up. So where are the... Uh, what, yes, you here, please, and then the person who's got it over there, and that's going to be it. Yeah. Um, thank you, Mr Chairman. Uh, Brief question for Lord Ashdown, um, and I hesitate in some ways to ask this, A, because it's almost a debating point um, and touches on issues that are of such importance that have been discussed so brilliantly this evening, B, because I'm also a Paddy Ashdown groupie, so the question is, if it's right um, that more, much more could have been achieved as a matter of diplomacy and the art of the possible by putting the emphasis in the early stages on humanitarian issues as opposed to regime change, Surely by failing to do that, the West has failed Syria and Thank the you. wider international community. Thank you. And then the person who's got the microphone there. Um, Thank you. I think yeah. the panel would unite around the idea that the international community has failed the people of Syria, from what I've heard from you all. Mm. Can you imagine any situation now where the UN would involve itself in an internal conflict? And if it wouldn't, is the UN effectively now dead? Wow. That's an, that is certainly a title for a future Intelligence Square debate, I feel. <laughs> and you're all going to be invited back, including the Paddy Ashdown fan club. What I am going to suggest is that we now move to our closing um, speeches. As we do that, uh, it is time for you to vote. So the motion before you is the West has failed Syria. Um, in, with this in your hand, uh, perforated along the middle, for or against, like that. Uh, tear off the four if you believe the West has failed Syria. Tear off the against if you say no, the West has not failed Syria. And put the whole card in if you want to abstain. I'm going to urge you to hush if you can. Let's bring the volume level right down. It's a secret ballot and also a silent ballot. No need for you to talk. This is voiceless voting. You do not need to speak as you tear that piece of paper in half. We're going to do the summing up. Um, two minutes uh, or less to our speakers. We're doing it in reverse order. Uh, and that means we begin with uh, you, Paddy Ashtown. Um, you are going to be our first summariser, if you well, like. let me answer um, the question. Sum up the things you've heard. And the point about, is the UN dead, maybe? Um, let me answer the question that was put to me. I mean, the truth is that we did bungle the early diplomacy. If you want to blame the West for that, you're entitled to do so. But that's a relatively small in scale to the things that we did since then, which I don't think we've bungled in the same way. So I accept that first step was a bungled step. I think if we'd have tried to build wider alliances, if we'd have taken the emphasis off regime change, if we'd have made it humanitarian, we might well, we'd have certainly made it more difficult for the Russians and the Chinese to say no if we'd have made it humanitarian at the start. So that was bungled, I agree. If you want to ascribe to that the whole burden of a West failure in Syria, by all means vote that way. But I think overall, the West has acted in the only way it could within the bounds of possibilities. On the question of um, the UN, I don't think the UN has 
um, failed. I don't believe it is a worthless body. I think it can be the place in which you build alliances, the sort of alliances we talked about. And I want to come back, if I may, in the minute or so I have, to this central question, which goes wider than the debate I grant. But we have to understand the change position of the West when we now act. You see, you're coming out of 50 years when the world has been monopolar, when the West was the giant that bestrode the rest of the world. And it could act alone and it could do what it wanted to and it didn't have to obey international law except where they found it appropriate to do so. It's a wholly different world now. In a period of a monopolarity, you have fixed alliances. That fixed alliance is NATO. In a period of, mo of multipolarity we're coming to, I think you have a world of changing alliances, of shifting alliances. If you want a model for the future of how the world might look, don't look to the last 50 years, which are a most unusual form of international structure anyway. Look to the 19th century, where you find a constant period of shifting alliances, where Canning said famously, Britain has a fixed interest but no fixed alliances. And our capacity to do things in the world is exactly what Rosemary said. It is about building alliances, about achieving specific aims. It's solving the world's economic problems. You have to have a G20. It's about humanitarian relief in India, the Ch in Pakistan. The Chinese can play a part, and by the way, they do. And it's understanding that multilateral diplomacy is going to move away now from a period of fixed alliances where the Atlantic Club does what it wants to a period of much more subtle diplomacy where in order to get things done in a specific problem, Libya, Syria, economic, humanitarian aid, you have to build alliances which are short-term, determined towards that end, but are the best way of achieving it, not military power. Thank you. Uh, Closing remarks from you, Sir Nigel Scheinwald. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Um, uh, I think there's a lot of war fatigue in the country, but fortunately not debate fatigue, which, is, uh, which I think is a good thing. Um, I noticed that um, the, our opponents this evening have somewhat shifted the debate. We're now talking about um, the new world of alliances. I don't disagree with any of that. Of course the world has changed fundamentally, and maybe in different ways, since, um, since the end of the, the Cold War, and certainly since the events of the last decade. We don't disagree about that. We don't disagree about the need to be uh, imaginative and flexible in the way that we, um, that we handle alliances. But the issue here is, how do we handle the most difficult bits of foreign policy? When you're dealing with a country which is attacking its own population, and when you've tried um, diplomatically to succeed, where you're running up against a brick wall, what do you do then? Um, and the fact is, in this modern world that we're in, um, there are a lot of internal conflicts. That's going to be, I think, the prediction for the next 50 years, as well as for the last uh, 20 or 30. How are we going to handle those? And I think the world has been trying to get to grips with that, has trying to come up with some sense of international responsibility to protect civ civilian populations. We're finding it very hard. We say that is a genuine uh, responsibility of foreign policy, and we're going to have to handle it and intervene very rarely but occasionally um, in order to stop the worst excesses happening, as we did in Libya correctly, even though we cannot say that Libya today is a success. And second, the shadow of Iraq. I mean, obviously, it's here in every debate uh, on what's going on in the Middle East. There are many lessons to learn. Each situation uh, is different. But I do hope that Iraq does not lead us to isolationism, um, uh, either, either in thought or in, uh, or in action. I do believe that Britain uh, ought to be active in the world to protect genuinely global uh, interests. And I don't think we can react to the situation in Syria by saying, really, this isn't 
um, part of our business. It's just too difficult to deal with. You have to find a way of dealing with situ situations which do affect our, um, our genuine strategic and national interests. So it's the West only shares the responsibility. The West, as a concept, is definitely evolving. But we've got to accept that share of responsibility, otherwise we won't learn the lessons um, of the past couple of years. Thank you. Thank you. I don't, I don't actually think there's a danger of the lesson of Iraq being read as uh, a reason to retreat into isolationism. Let us not forget that the British government was very keen to galvanize NATO to intervene in Libya and succeeded. Uh, Iraq is not the last war we did. And asking people about the Libyan campaign after it happened, those who knew what they were talking about, they said 80% upwards of the war effort that toppled Gaddafi and gave the rebels victory was due to NATO, NATO air power and the use of it and the small teams that they had on the ground to help with the targeting. And that was amongst the lessons of Libya that were actually considered in year one of the Syrian war. Mm. And you had military, experienced military personnel explaining that there was no resemblance between the Syrian battlefield and the one that was tackled in Libya. So the art of the possible, Libya was a sort of opportunity to do responsibility to protect by force, but the responsibility to protect humanitarian community were really angry about the lesson learned from Libya, which was an assumption that when you wanted to protect a population, you go straight to regime change, and you use a UN resolution to do that. In fact, if you look at the rules of responsibility to protect, you have to start by working with the regime. And it's only when you've established that the regime either doesn't have the capacity to look after its own citizens or is not going to, that you then move several more layers up. But you cannot, you cannot suddenly say we must have humanitarian corridors and we're going to do it by force. You have to exhaust it, all the other possibilities of doing it by cooperation. Is it not clear in this case that cooperation with Assad is not really much of a... It wasn't runner? tried, because there was these stupid statements that, that the uh, Assad is going. It's obvious. He's over. Uh, and, no, I was in conversation with people on the humanitarian side, and they said, for us to act as humanitarian aid operatives, we need the European Union and uh, the UN to pronounce this a humanitarian emergency. Until they do that, we can't act. And they didn't do that. Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, Roger Cohen, why don't you pick up on and that? And they've voted already, so I haven't lost the debate. No, no, you can't be blamed for losing the debate. You can't be accused of failing your side of the motion, don't worry. Um, they, they, these, we're now into the... Uh, in the realm of, uh, this was what even Paddy Ashton said earlier, this is like being asked on to news night after the polls have closed on election night. <laughs> it's an absolute exercise in futility. Nothing you can say will sway any minds at all. But nevertheless, you, Paddy, did it over many, many years. And now... 
we turn to you, Roger Cohen, to make in it your... To in make the your, service of my party. In the service of your party. <laughs> um, why don't you make a closing remark and perhaps address that point from Rosemary Hollis, that actually uh, you, the, there was a jump straight away from doing nothing to regime change and actually the attempt to cooperate and perhaps work with people on the ground might have made humanitarian relief uh, more possible. Roger Cohen. Uh, well, first of all, I'm sorry that Nigel and I don't seem to have any groupies uh, in the audience. <laughs> but if you're out there, <laughs> please raise your voices now. <laughs> They're okay, up there. Good, good, good. Um, yeah, the notion that we could have uh, cooperated with Assad on uh, anything constructive, I just, I'm sorry, I find it entirely uh, far-fetched. Um, this man uh, has bombarded, shot, gassed his own people in vast numbers. He's a criminal. Uh, I am reminded of Bosnia, um, although Paddy Ashtown seems to think I should forget about Bosnia or at no. least realize that we've moved on from there. I'm reminded of Bosnia, not least because it seems to me very clear how the moral issue divides up in Syria. Uh, it's less clear, it's more murky with time, but it's still clear to me. And I'm reminded of Bosnia because, of course, toward the end of Bosnia, we heard what Paddy Ashton was saying tonight. Al-Qaeda's there, how do we know the weapons won't fall into the hands of Al-Qaeda? And, of course, by the end of the Bosnian War, um, these bearded guys were, you know, arriving from uh, the Middle East and elsewhere, and uh, you had seen a radicalization of uh, the situation there that did not exist uh, absolutely at the beginning. Morality is important, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Kissingerian rail politique, in my view, has to be balanced by Wilsonian idealism in foreign yeah. policy. We're hearing all this chat about China and about, you know, make these alliances for a couple of weeks or three weeks or four weeks and get things done. But what do these new powers stand for? I mean, we know what we stand for in Europe and the United States. We know what the transatlantic alliance stands for. Uh, it fails often, but we know what it stands for. It stands for the promotion of freedom and democracy and the rule of law and human rights around the world. And those values remain important. And that alliance remains important. And American red lines uh, remain very important. And one thing we've seen, I mean, if there hadn't been an American red line, Berlin would not be a free city today. Okay, the world's moved on, but those red lines can't. We still live Pax Americana. And if we forget that, I think we move into a very dangerous world. Okay. My own view, uh, just to finish, is that for quite a time, Assad was much more of a paper tiger uh, than we imagined, and we never tested him. And I think we're going to be haunted by our failure in Syria for a very long time to come. Thank you. Thank you. Um, before... Before I give you the final uh, result of tonight's vote, I just want to thank all of you for coming, but particularly to thank those questioners, those who, whose questions were heard, and I think they were very high calibre of questions, and an apology to those people whose questions I couldn't get to. The clock was, I'm afraid, against us. I also, uh, I'm sure, want to uh, speak for all of you in thanking four outstanding speakers in Roger Cohen, Nigel Scheinwald, Rosemary Hollis, and Paddy Ashton. Thank you. And, 
And, and now, um, let me tell you how these four speakers uh, influenced and swayed you over the course of the evening. When you came in, there was a vote uh, for the motion, the West has failed Syria. 36% agreed with that, 21 were against, and 43% were don't knows. After the debate, the don't know number has dramatically fallen, so that's a tribute to all four speakers. The don't knows reduced from 43% just down to 4%. Uh, those who are for the motion that the West has failed Syria, this is the case put over here, uh, 42%, and those against, 54%. So the motion has been defeated. Thank you all for coming. Thanks to our speakers. Good night. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared debates, talks and discussions free on iTunes. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.